So this morning's uh, session is on corporate witness. We've talked about several things, but this morning we're going to talk about how we witness corporately as a church. And let me just push this book. So we've got like eight copies left. These are, we're, we're losing money on them. We're not making money. We never do that, by the way. We always sell at price. We don't make money off books. But we're losing money on this one to sell it to you for five bucks, um, just so you'll grab it. And one of the unique things about this book is it's called How the Whole Church, subtitle, Evangelism Subtitle, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. And so what I love about this book is that it talks about our job corporately more than most things. It's not just you going out on your own. Let's read the table of contents of altar calls and laser lights. And he sort of talks about bad ways the church has done evangelism. And then a culture of evangelism. Culture meaning the way we do things around here. That's what we want. Connecting church and a culture of evangelism. Intentional evangelism in a culture of evangelism. And then actually sharing our faith. Uh, Max Siles was here a couple years ago. Just a, one of the most faithful evangelists you'll ever meet. So uh, there's still copies here. Love for y'all to take those. Five bones, you'll be glad you read it. So week one, we talked about God's purpose, trying to look at the big picture and see that ultimately God's purpose is to redeem a people for his praise. It's why we're here. It's why he's left us here in this time between the times. He could have wrapped it all up in his first coming. The Old Testament didn't say a whole lot about two comings. There's little hints there. Instead, he's left us here in this era of witness. And so one of the main reasons we're here is to glorify God by declaring the gospel and living out the gospel. We, this phrase that's been, I don't know where it comes from, but it's really helpful to shift our paradigm. It's not that God has a mission for his church. It's the way we think a lot. Well, we have a mission. We have a missions department. We have mission staff. We have missions program. We do, but the better way to phrase it is God has a church for his mission. Instead of the church having a mission, God has a church for his mission. So we looked at the mission of God. The whole Bible is the record and the tool and the product of the mission of God. That's what he's doing is moving from creation to new creation. And he uses us to get there. That's why we're here. And so that's why we exist as a church. Again, that's the, that's the point of that book, Missional Ecclesiology. And then we looked at one of the, I wasn't here, unfortunately, I heard Cooper did a great job, one of the, the deep end of the theological swimming pool of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's always good to remind ourselves, this issue's been debated since the fourth century. Augustine and Cassius went at it, in some ways Christians have been going at it ever since. It's a tough topic, but for evangelism, really important, uh, especially for the way we're going to lean as a church, we're going to lean on God's initiation. He takes the first step, and that's so, so encouraging with evangelism, right? So encouraging to know that he saves. We just need to be faithful to that message he saves through. Then uh, Doc took us through uh, using our testimony as a bridge to share Christ. A helpful distinction there between the gospel message and our testimony. Our testimony is how God has used the gospel to save us. So good stuff there. And by the way, this is why one of the reasons why we do members meetings the way we do members meetings. So if you haven't come to a members meeting and you're a member, shame on you. You should come. It's part of your job. Uh, but it's really encouraging. And part of the reason we do that is so that you can hear the testimonies of new members. And one of the reasons we do that is so that you can hear, oh, yeah, so-and-so is saved by a lot of moms, a lot of moms, 93% of Christians, Christians because the faithful mom is sharing the gospel, but also just normal people with ordinary conversations. And so hopefully some of that is to say, oh, yeah, man, I, I can do that. They got saved from that. This kid got saved because Noah kept inviting him at Olive Garden, and he ultimately comes. I mean, I can do that. I can pester people at restaurants. So, so I encourage you to be bold. 
Any lingering questions from any of that uh, so far? I know we've covered a lot of ground, but anything that's, you know, pebble stuck in your shoe that I'm going to talk about before we jump into this next session? I know it's hard in this big room. Don't be shy. All right, corporate witness then. Corporate witness. Witnessing as a congregation, you know, too many people, thank God not so much at Southside, but too many people think that evangelism at the end of the day is just is the pastor's job or the, the, the staff's job or the elder's job. And they want to delegate the call that they have to someone else. Uh, it's just kind of like some lingering Roman Catholicism we have in us. Like, oh, so-and-so wants to talk about Jesus. Let me go get the pastor. So-and-so has a question about the gospel. Let me go get the pastor. That's not always wrong, but health is when you share the gospel with them. Uh, you know, anytime, you know, and I hear uh, parents, it's rare at Southside that parents will come to a pastor, to a staff elder and say, hey, my kid has questions. Will you talk, will you talk to them? That's, that's healthy that that's rare. It's better you tell them, right? We are not priests. We don't have any special access to the Lord. We're all priests in the new covenant. So evangelism is not just for the pastors. In fact, I say all the time that half the time um, we, we, we don't get to do it. If, if evangelism is dependent upon especially staff in a church, it's just rarely going to happen. You know why? We spend 45 to 50 hours with you. We don't get to be out in the workplace. Our workplace is with one another. And so it's really hard for us to do evangelism. The way the church is going to grow by conversion is you in your neighborhoods and especially in your jobs and hobbies. Y'all get to rub shoulders with unbelievers in an infinite amount more than we do. And so if it depends upon us, it's not going anywhere. But when you're faithful, it can. I've got one, uh, I really got one non-Christian in my life, one, one contact. I want, I want 20. It's just hard. It's hard with time and children and everything. And, and, uh, and he's been asking questions. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about my one guy. <laughs> and then I'll try to find more. So health is when we're all doing it. I, I came across a statement. I wrote it down. I don't remember where I got this, but I thought this was really helpful um, in terms of corporate witness. We as Christians, we as a church are to bear witness in word and deed to the truth of the gospel, embodying as salt and light the presence, demands, and values of the kingdom of God. I just thought that was a really good summary of where we're going. We bear witness in word and deed to the truth of the gospel, embodying as salt and light the presence, the demands, and the values of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to talk some today about the fact that, yeah, we need to be speaking, but not only speaking, we also need to be living. So number one, the corporate gathering proclaims the gospel. I think we have an outline for you. The corporate gathering proclaims the gospel. Five ways, five ways that this happens. Number one, when the church gathers together, non-Christians hear the gospel proclaimed. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. When the church gathers together, they hear the gospel. 2 Timothy, let's pick up at verse 14. 
So Paul to Timothy here, telling, telling him how he ought to behave in the household of God. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise. Notice these writings, they're sacred, and these writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Maybe, maybe translation says inspired. King Jimmy had inspired, which is fine. But I think nowadays when people hear inspired, they think like uh, inspired like when they go to a concert. That's not what Paul's trying to say here. He actually makes up this word. It's two words. So the word for God is theos. And the word for spirit is pneuma. And he, he combines them. Theopneustos. It's a brand new word Paul makes it. God breathed or God spirited. Spirited out by God. All scripture, he says, is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So just notice what that word does. Because the spirit of God goes to work through the word, it's profitable. Of course it's profitable. It teaches, it reproves, it corrects. That's that negative function. You know, at Southside, um, you know, we, we tend to get in your grill a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's not us. It's the Word. And according to this verse, part of the purpose of Scripture is that correction. To get in your grill a little bit it is to reprove you, right? Because we're being discipled by the world all the time and we need that. We need to be set back, corrected in alignment. That's part of the purpose of Scripture. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you, if that's what the nature of Scripture is, what's... What's the calling in the church gathering? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's a lot of serious stuff. Basically, he's talking about judgment. In light of all this, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Here's those negative terms again. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so this is one of the many reasons why at Southside we're going to have an open Bible anytime we gather in Sunday school or in the church because the Spirit is the author of this Word and the, the main instrument by which the Spirit is promised to work is this Word. And so when non-Christians are here, they're going to hear it. They're going to hear it proclaimed. We want that to happen. The Word goes to work. Jackson mentioned the uh, division in Ezekiel 37. Remember Ezekiel's there and he's preaching to drop a bunch of skeletons to the graveyard. Anytime we're preaching or sharing the gospel, it's to the graveyard. But the Spirit of God comes in and, and builds tendons and puts them together and produces life. The Word goes to work. So how do we witness corporately? Well, we preach the Word. We do that here. Number two, when the church gathers together, non-Christians can hear the gospel prayed. So proclaimed, but also prayed. And so we want to pray, and we want to pray intentionally in our corporate gatherings so you have this on Sunday mornings where we will have various prayers. And one of those, the, the, when often members will pray, uh, we, we rotate from, from Acts, you know, the old Acts model, right? So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So when non-Christians are here, we want them to hear us adore God. We want them to hear us confess our sins. That's really important. The main guy I'm talking to, he's, he, uh, he, man, he just has a, a skewed view of Christians that we're all self-righteous. And so it's good for us to confess our sins in front of non-Christians and say, hey, look, we need the gospel just as much as you need the gospel. I remember one time in another church, we decided we were going to invite, well, actually the church, when I got there, had a, a closed home group model. 
and meaning only members. And we were shifting that to say, look, if that's what you want to do as a leader, that's fine. We're not going to micromanage groups. But we encourage you to invite non-believers to come in. If you know unbelievers, invite them to your home group. They know you're a Christian. They know you're talking about Christian things. Let them be a fly on the wall. And uh, one of the ladies was like, oh, no, man, we get real in there. We confess our sins on our home group. I don't want some non-Christian coming in there. And I'm like, why? Like you'll have a non-Christian realize that you're a sinner and that you have sins and that we look to Jesus to save us from our sins and the spirit to sanctify on the path. It's like, oh, well, you put it that way. It's actually a really good model for them for uh, just to look. And increasingly, as we move post-Christian, uh, it's helpful for non-Christians to kind of just watch. To, to, this, this term can be abused, but to belong a little bit, not as a member, but to be around before they believe. Sometimes they just need to see, what is it? Especially now where there's like no biblical categories. They have no idea what we're talking about. Did y'all see the recent um, deal on, uh, what is it? What's the... Wheel of Fortune, where, was it Wheel of Fortune? Where the three people couldn't finish the line of the Lord's Prayer. Did y'all see this? Happened like a week or two ago. So the Lord's Prayer, our Father, and three of them could not, was it Jeopardy? Okay, Jeopardy. Uh, they couldn't finish it in America. They could not say the rest of the Lord's Prayer. You know, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. And so people don't have a clue. So they may need to just, just have a, a toe in the water to be able to, to watch a little bit and see. Confession, and then thanksgiving, giving thanks for all things, showing that we are a people of gratitude, and then supplication, asking our God from things. So we want non-Christians to hear our prayers, and that's going to happen in our corporate gathering. It's also going to happen on Sunday nights. You know, our Sunday night prayer gatherings are not for members only, not members meetings, but to have them show up and hear. I mean, man, what a thing of beauty, a compelling community. Number three. When the church gathers together, non-Christians can hear the gospel sung. And so I don't know if you ever think about, and we're here, we're fundamentally singing to the Lord, but Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, 3, I think 16 and 17, 5, 18, 19, somewhere around there, talks about singing to the Lord and to one another. And so we're not, we're not blind to the fact that we're singing to the Lord, but we, there's people around. And one of the ways you can encourage Christians, but also challenge non-Christians is by singing loud, singing joyfully. We're just used to singing here as a church, but zoom out, especially thinking about other world religions. We're Christians are some of the few people that sing. There's chants, but we're one of the few people that sing. And when we sing with joy, that's a, that's a curious thing. Like, wow, this person is really enjoying what they're doing, of singing boldly, joyfully, in a celebratory way. One, one author calls it doxological, meaning praise, doxology, doxological evangelism. Flip over to 1 Peter, chapter 2. First Peter 2, look at verse 9. Passage about the church. He actually quotes four titles from, for Israel, for Old Testament, and applies them to the church. But I want to focus on the purpose we're going to see. So he's talking about our identity for a moment in verse 9, and then he's going to talk about our action. It's really important that identity always precedes action. You're a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Goal, purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter wants us to know who we are, and that will inform what we do. And so these titles, you're a chosen race, you're chosen. God chose you before the foundation of the world. You are the one race. There's only one race now. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You are a kingdom of priests, and so you are a king. You spread the presence of God, but you're also a priest. You mediate, right? That's what priests do. We're not Catholic in here, but we all get the vision of the confessional. So we come in here, there's the priest, and so I need to get to God. This is all according to their scheme, right? I need to get to God. I can't get there on my own, so I step in there and I go through the priest. And he mediates between me and God. Well, according to this, the whole church is to be a kingdom of priests. We mediate between the nations, the world, and God. That's why we exist. And what is, what's one of the ways we do that? How do we mediate? Well, we praise God, actually. That's what he says, right? We proclaim his excellencies. We praise God, and that's part of what we do, being a distinct people. That's why we exist. We proclaim his mercies, his excellencies. Doxological evangelism. Go back to Psalm 96. It's the same thing. Want us to see our singing in part as evangelistic. We sing to praise God, but our singing can be one of the means God uses for evangelism. Psalm 96. Let's look at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. By the way, this, this is one verb here. Tell of his salvation. Any other translations say something different there? Just shout it out. If your translation is different than that. Tell of his salvation. Proclaim good tidings. That's actually better. What translation is that? NASB. What else? Same thing? Proclaim the good news. That's even better. Which one's that? New King James. All right. Uh, the word is euangelizo. You hear our word euangelion? Evangelism, gospelism, euangelion. That's the word. It's preach the gospel. It's tell the gospel. That's what the verb is right there. So notice, as you're singing, you're telling the gospel. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Preach the gospel day to day. Tell the gospel. So in your singing, you're telling the gospel. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations. So notice there's this praise of God amidst the pagans. How marvelous works among all the peoples were praising God in the midst of unbelievers. Verse 4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So it's doxological evangelism. We're sharing the gospel as we sing. This all assumes that non-Christians are here, right? <laughs> it assumes that you are inviting non-Christians to our corporate gathering. And so they got to be here for this to work. Uh, John Dixon, an author of a book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission that I really like. He says this. We got the quote. Uh, I think we got a quote for you. I'm going to share it. 
There are all sorts of reasons some of our churches have visitors. Location, architecture, demographics, and so on. But in my experience, the most significant factor is the quality of the church service. By quality, I do not mean the professionalism of the leader or the standard of technology and music. I mean the degree to which the congregation revels in its experience of praising God and encouraging one another. I would go so far as to say that over time, the number of visitors in our church service is directly proportionate to the level of enthusiasm felt by those who regularly attend. I think that's true. And man, y'all do a fantastic job of it. So I'd say just keep doing it. Keep doing what you're doing. But add this element in what you're doing in terms of your motive as part of this is for the sake of witnessing to non-believers. That is 1 Corinthians 14 says, they may say, wow, God really is among them. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Now, I'm not saying perform, right? But what I would say is just pray. If you feel like, you know, I come in here on a Sunday and I'm just checking my box, I'm just doing my duty. I get it. That happens. There are, there are seasons where that's the case. But pray that God would grab your heart so that it's not a, uh, what does he say, a, uh, a fake or a conjured, where's the wording here, uh, reveling in the experience of praising God but that God would do it and so that you actually, from the heart, revel in our time together in God's grace. So when we sing, number four, when the church gathers together, non-Christians can see the gospel displayed in baptism and communion primarily. And so, man, praise God, we've been able to see several baptisms uh, and we'll see one today as well. And so, And this is one of the reasons we do video testimonies as well. And so when non-Christians are here, they see testimonies of people just like them who tell about who they were before Christ and how Christ saved them and then how their life is different. And so we want that to be encouragement to y'all just for your faith. Like, man, we're in this together. God keeps saving people. Encouragement and spurring on to y'all for evangelism. But also when non-Christians are present, oh man, I can be saved. That, That sounded like my life before I came to Christ. And then the Lord's Supper. And so hopefully at Southside, when a whole whole service, especially if we have the Lord's Supper or baptism, we do the Lord's Supper once a month, the gospel, you're going to hear the gospel preached. You're going to hear it sung. You're going to hear it prayed. You're going to sing it. So you should feel really good about bringing non-Christian friends here. They're going to hear it again and again and again from different angles and different facets of it. So let me stop there. Any questions so far? We've got a lot. Don't be shy. If you got a question, someone else probably thinking the same thing. They're just shy. Yeah. Full of God. Yeah, yeah. Enthusiasm. You got to be careful with. Uh, with semantics and, and doing that sort of thing, the, the, the classic error is dynamite. So the Greek word for power is dunamis. I need to get Kate up here to talk about this. Dunamis, and it's like, it's dynamite power. Well, when Paul's writing the power of God, he wasn't thinking of dynamite. <laughs> so it's a loose connection, but there is a connection, right? Enthusiasm in theos, word God, and so to be in God. And yeah, we ought to be enthusiastic for us. We ought to be the most. Now, different personalities are going to express that in different ways, right? And so I'm not saying change who you are necessarily, 
but you might want to lean into it. The Bible does command us, I think, 25 times to raise our hands when we're praising God. That's not an optional thing. Is that my personality? Well, God commands it all throughout the Psalms. But yes, enthusiasm, joy. And then with, man, the way you guys come early and stay late, it's a compelling thing. Like, oh, wow, here it is, you know, 1.15 p.m. and they're still here hanging out. They must really love one another. You know, that's all enthusiasm expressed in different ways. So absolutely. Yes, sir. Worshiping in spirit, so John 4, spirit and truth, right? So it's a big passage, uh, and it has to do, so back in John 4, the Samaritan woman basically wants to evade what's going on in her life because she's been married five times and Jesus knows it, right? And so she tries to evade it and say, well, our people say we're going to worship on this mountain. Uh, what's it called? Going blank. It's a Gennesaret, John 4. Anyway, that, another mountain, right? But your people, the Jewish people say it's going to be on Jerusalem. So she's wanting to talk about worship at a certain place to just evade Jesus. And Jesus, no, it's in spirit and in truth. It's not, in other words, really what's going on there, it's no longer localized in the temple, but it's everywhere. So according to truth and according to spirit, one of the things I think we have at Southside that is unique is that combination. And so, you know, churches, generally speaking, churches that are big on the book can lack the spirit. And be truth, but not have vibrancy and um, enthusiasm. And then generally speaking, some that want to emphasize vibrancy and enthusiasm tend to neglect the book. Generalizations want to be fair, but we want to do both, man. We want to be word and spirit. Any other questions? Word and spirit because the spirit authored the word. So we want, we want the spirit to go to work. That's why we put this forward. You know, sometimes, just a tangent here. Never mind. It's 9.50. It's 9.50. <laughs> Number five. When the church gathers together, non-Christians can see the gospel lived out. I want to spend most of our time here. Non-Christians see the gospel lived out, not only in our gathering, but in all our gatherings. Here's how one author says it. Church is simply a community of disciples gathered together to order their lives according to the will of their Lord who lives in their midst. He goes on to say that the church is a community of those under the Lordship of Christ who continue the work and ministry of Jesus. And so we model what it looks like for people to obey Jesus. We model what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God. Flip over the Gospel of John chapter 13. Look at verse 34, corporate witness. What a chapter, right? Y'all know this chapter? Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He's headed to the cross. He wants to leave an impression on them. What's he gonna do? This is what he does. He, he bends down and washes feet. Verse 15, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, not literally washing one another's feet, but giving of self for the good of others. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, let me stop. He says it's a new commandment, but that's just a quotation of Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself, love one another. So what does he mean? How's that new, Jesus? We know that. We've got Leviticus. 
I'm normally good with awkward silence, but with the bigger room, the awkward just ratchets up a bit. As, right? Absolutely. It's right there in the text. A new commandment that I give to you that you love one another just as. That's what's new. I've loved you. You're also to love one another. So Jesus fills it in. He shows us what it means to love in a way that Old Testament saints didn't have that example, right? 1 John 3, 16, by this we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for one another and we ought to do the same. And what does that mean? Do we literally die on crosses? No, but we give of self. That self-sacrifice. Love is self-sacrificial. We give of self for the good of another. And so when, when there's a community of Jesus coming together and their main characteristic, which it is to be our main characteristic, love, a whole bunch of people who come together and give of self for the good of another, for the building up another, what's the goal? What's the end goal? Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the main, in fact, Jesus doesn't talk a lot about witness. One of the main ways he says that the world will know we're Christians is how we love one another. The way I've seen this the most is when one of you, you, one of you all go to the hospital or one of you go and the nurses are like, what, is this person a celebrity? This door is just revolving. Who are all these people? And I love it. And I'll show up and I'll be the 12th person there. <laughs> Because you're loving one another well, meeting practical needs. It's really practical. It's also really hard today. More than ever, the church is splintered. I think it's mostly post-COVID. I mean, man, it's so discouraging out there nowadays with the, the polarity of people that used to be friends that are picking secondary, tertiary issues and splitting over. And so, man, we need to be working at this locally, but more than locally. First and foremost, locally. So it's by our love for one another, not our you know, vitriolic spewing towards one another. But love, he says the same thing, a little different in a couple chapters later. Flip over to chapter 17. Yo, where you at? So a year ago, the, our area burned down. Yeah. We had so many Southside people come out there and help us. It was like bees on a beehive. Hmm. Oh, come on. There it is. Praise God. Yeah, that's what, the, that's what the church does and should do. We should want non-Christians to want our community, even if they deny Jesus. Now, they won't, but it's what we should want. That they see something like, I've never seen that type of community in any other context. There's nothing to explain that. And there's nothing besides the Spirit of God coming around Christ. Notice what he says in John 17. So this is the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying. Look at verse 20. What does Jesus pray for his church? Chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Notice that. This is the only time in the Bible Jesus is praying for you. Not for his disciples that are right there in front of him, but those who are going to believe later. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, and that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Man, especially in 2023, challenging verses. Challenging verses. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, says the world's going to know that we're his people in two ways. Love for one another, and then unity, that we are one. It's a challenge to us all, but it's especially a challenge for us with a really, really high view of the Bible that have really, really particular views on things, right? So we just want to keep the main things the main things. And as we're talking about why we do things the way we do, and inevitably sometimes that requires talking about other churches that don't do things the way we think they ought to do them. But our tone and content needs to be really careful that in that we're still saying we serve the same Lord. We're on the same team, ultimately. Unity. And again, right now, just big C, big C church, I think we're failing at this, generally speaking. Social media has not helped. Ephesians 2, we won't go there for the sake of time, but Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 is the same, it's the same emphasis that Jesus Christ came to tear down the wall that was dividing Jews and Gentiles. And at the time, that was the fundamental division of all mankind, hostile towards one another. And he comes and he tears it down. Why? That he might make the two one. And this, this word one is used again and again and again. Make them one, make them one, make them one. And then chapter four of Ephesians, seven times, one baptism, one, all of it. One, one is used seven times in a row. Maintain the spirit of oneness. Eagerly maintain it. And so our unity is really important. Unity and holiness. Important, important, important. Matthew chapter five. Flip over there with me. Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. When the church gathers together, non-Christians can see the gospel lived out. So again, just thinking about context here before we read the verse, this is Matthew 5, the, the very first chapter of the most important sermon in the whole Bible. So this is pretty important, right? This is the way he starts things out. What's the point of the sermon? He starts out with the Beatitudes, but then he talks about the community that he's going to form, the community of the new covenant. Verse 13, you, and by the way, I need to check this. I need to check this, but I can safely say 90%. It may, be, it may be closer to like 98, but 90% of the times you read you in the Bible, a better translation would be y'all. It's plural. It's a plural you. It's hardly ever individual you. These guys, you, y'all, I don't know. But there is a y'all Bible. Do you all know that? You should Google it sometime. Just Google the y'all Bible. It actually will transform your reading of the Bible when you see it. It really will. So y'all, Jesus says, maybe. You all are the salt of the earth. And that's important because he's not just talking about us as individuals, right? He's talking about corporate witness. Y'all are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You're the, y'all are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. What, what, is, what is salt used for? Just throw it out. There's more than one answer. Preservative. What else? Taste. What else? Say louder. 
Still can't hear, sorry. Cleansing. Cleansing, okay, a cleansing. Especially in the ancient world, there weren't, there weren't you know, we didn't have fridges. If, if they did, they would last longer than our modern day fridges. But they didn't have fridges, so they just used salt, right? Salt was a preservative. It was used as a fertilizer as well to improve the quality of the soil. So what does that mean for us as a church? Some of those, we've heard three or four. What does that mean as a church? Jesus says, y'all are the salt of the earth. What does he mean by that? We're preservative. preservative. (laughs) What does that mean? You want to take a stab? What does that mean? We are the preservative of the earth. Have an influence. A positive one, a preserving one, right? We prevent decay if we're active. We just, you know, bunker down in our holy huddles. We won't do anything. But if we're active in the world, we'll prevent decay, moral decay. Carry healing. It's good. Encourage growth. Yeah. Salt enriches. It stimulates it preserves. It adds flavor. Negatively, preserves food, food from decay. And so we, by our presence, we, we help it from happening. We temper ethical decay. You know, one of the reasons why I think American culture is just so bad is the church hasn't been active and we've lost our salt in so many ways. And so in whatever sphere God places us, workplaces, leadership roles, volunteer committees, school boards, wherever, we're to be ambassadors. We're to speak the words of life and we're to show the right way. That's why we need Christians active in the public square, serving the city in various ways. And it adds flavor. How many times have you heard either, either, need salt, (laughs) need salt, or too salty? One of those, right? Salt's a game changer especially on watermelon. Don't knock it if you haven't tried it. So we're to be this beneficial influence in the world. So we make things better. Wherever God has placed us, those places should flourish. The employers in the city of Abilene ought to be looking for Christians to hire. Love them to be looking for Southside. Oh, you you hired a Southside person? Man, they make things better. Christian homes and work and school and politics, we bring about flourishing because we know God's word and we know God's way and we know it's best. And we treat others with dignity as made in the image of God. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Then he says, y'all are the light of the world. What does light do? Well, it shines. Positively, it shines. It guides. But negatively, it exposes, right? Ephesians talks about this. Yeah. Hmm. So attractive, draws them in, yeah. You know, Jesus doesn't, there's a lot, it's funny when you go reading scholars and commentaries on what Jesus means by salt, there's like 10 different options. And I'm like, I think he probably meant at least eight of the 10. I think that's why he chose the metaphor, this broad metaphor that applies in a whole host of ways. Same with light. It, light does so much. It provides guidance, provides safety. This is why kids want a night light, right? It's why it's dangerous. It gets rid of danger. It's dangerous to walk around in the dark, especially in my home. Toys and Legos, God forbid. (laughs) But then you turn on the switch 
And the darkness just is expelled. So light, by its very nature, shines. And what's the goal then? Jesus says, y'all are salt, y'all are light. What's the goal? Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, purpose clause, they may see, not just hear, but see your good works. And what's the result? They would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Give glory in Greek is doxazo, doxological evangelism. In this case, it's doxological countercultural living. By the way we live, others, outsiders, will see our lifestyle. And it always cuts both ways. Don't get me wrong, right? The same sun that hardens the clay, softens the whatever the image is. Sun does both. It softens and it hardens, right? Same way, there's going to be people that dig in and hate it all the more. But there are some who are going to see your compelling and countercultural and different and honestly weird lives, and they're going to be drawn in. And they're going to give glory to God because of the good works that you do. We witness corporately by the way we live. We do it for God's glory, not for our glory. He gets it all because ultimately it's from him. He enables us to do it. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in so many ways tells us what it means to live as salt and light. We won't go there, but it's always good to reread the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean to be salty, biblically? Not angry, but countercultural. And so we're to be, and that's, that's key, right? Notice that. Think about those images. Is light any good in a room filled with light? Is salt any good in a pile of salt? Now, what makes salt so valuable is its distinctness, Right? Same with light. Light is very distinct from darkness. You can't, they don't intermingle. One takes over the other. And so for us to be effective as a church, as Christians, we need to be different. We need to be distinct. That's always been the case. Now it's just a lot easier to be distinct in American culture. But even in 1950s, Christians should have been distinct people and not lose our saltiness, right? Because what good is saltiness? No good, just to be trampled. And so we're different. We're different from the world, the way the Bible would speak of the world. My, my definition I come to again and again from, from David Wells of worldliness. Listen, listen carefully to this definition. Worldliness is that system of values and beliefs, behaviors and expectations in any given culture that have at their center the fallen human being and that relegate to their periphery any thought about God. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. Let's say that again, it's big. Worldliness is that system of values and beliefs, behaviors and expectation in any given culture that have at their center fallen human being and relegate to the periphery any thought about God. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. And so we ought to be very odd. And again, it's pretty easy to be odd today. Let's make Christianity weird again. And so many Christians are wanting to do the opposite though. And so here we are to be contrast and so many Christians are wanting to lower the wall and just blend right in. And it's always the social issues, right? It's been different in every generation, but whatever social cultural pressure is pushing on the Bible the most, some Christians want to say, well, let's just lower that down. That way we might be more palatable to postmodern people. And that's never going to work, right? People who aren't interested in Christianity aren't interested in almost Christianity. And so we just need to keep it and just realize, it, you know, we're in every age there's going to be people that hate what we believe. 
And at the end of the day, we want to be humble and loving and keep pressing on. Salty. But they want to lower the distinction between the church and the world, and they don't want accountability. No one practices church discipline anymore. I mean, in membership class, we talk a lot about church discipline, and more often than not, people look at me like I'm crazy. But a hundred years ago, it was just the norm to practice church discipline. It's how the church stays pure. It's how you keep the church and the world separate. As 1 Corinthians 5 said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so we, we're different. Our effectiveness, this is key. Ultimately, our effectiveness as salt and light lies in our difference from it. Difference from the world, not being just like it. Philippians 2, just listen, I won't turn there for time, but it says we are to shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation as we hold fast to the word of life. As we hold fast to the word, we shine. As you believe things that Christians have believed for 2,000 years that, you know, half a dozen of them right now are really hard to hold to, as you hold fast to that, you will shine. You will shine. And, you know, LGBTQ is all the, it's, all, it's it right now, but I'm encouraged by even secular people beginning to see the bankruptcy of the path. And that's a good thing. And say, hey, we've been here all along and we care for you after the operation. When you hate everything about you, we're here to receive you and help you get back on the right trajectory. If you're interested in that, by the way, there's a secular person named Abigail Shirer, and it's called Irreversible Damage. Non-Christian, just showing that specifically the transgender path doesn't lead to life. We're seeing more and more of that as more of those who've transitioned begin to age and have regrets and complications. We need to be there, not with a pointing finger, told you so, but with a welcome arms. We've got a place for you here. We shine. Contrast society. A certain type of people. Uh, irreversible damage. I think it's S-H-I-R-E-R. Shirer. Shirer. Abigail Shirer, I think. You'll find it. Irre irreversible damage. So by our works, we, we shine forth. One more passage. Titus chapter 2, verse 10. This whole section of Titus 1 to 10 is about teaching sound doctrine, but I love the conclusion. So it tells them several things on how you ought to live in the church. And what does he say in verse 10? Not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Here's the purpose clause. So that. Why should we teach sound doctrine and live in light of sound doctrine? So that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You believe the right things, you teach the right things, and the goal is that you might adorn well the doctrine. Any other translations on that verse? What's the New King Jimmy say? Adorn. Others? 2.10? Make attractive. That's good. Make attractive. So by our living and by our believing, we make attractive. The word's cosmeo. It's where we get our cosmetics. We adorn, we make up, we make attractive. By our lives, the doctrine. 
And God's entrusted that to us as a church to do that, right? Inevitably, my children in their behavior will affect my reputation. You've done that. You see somebody, you know, oh man, their kids, whew, they must not be. So you connect their kids with them, right? Inevitably. Well, the father has actually entrusted his reputation to us to make it attractive and to adorn it well by our words and by our lives. So those five ways non-Christians are uh, witnessed to in the current. There's two whole sections, but I just want to stop and ask any questions, clarifications, testimonies, and something that might encourage the rest of us in light of these things, non-Christians and corporate witness. All right, next section then, incorporating the corporate gathering in our evangelism. So we talked about how the corporate gathering evangelizes. What about us? Got them on the board here. Let me just run through these quickly. Connect your evangelism to the local church. And so as you're able to share the gospel, for all the reasons we've just seen and more, connect those two. And again, this Max Stiles book, that's the strength of that book is it helps you do that. What, at the end of the day, Baptism in the New Testament is baptized into the local church, Acts 2.41, 1 Corinthians 12.13. And so as we're doing evangelism, we want it to come in. This is really important, another tangent for missions. Sometimes there are mission organizations that want to separate the local church from evangelism. That never goes well because at the end of the day, what you want to do is connect them. Connect your evangelism and discipleship to the local church. It's God's will and God's way. Number two, when we talk about church, speak positively. This is uh, especially important for your children. So some of you that have, I mean, inevitably, I know many of you have been irritated with me or with something that the church has done here. It's part of life. I always tell people, look, you're never going to find a pastor that you like 100% or agree with everything about. It's just not, not going to happen. You're going to have to learn to overlook faults. But when you do that, be careful how you speak about the church and its leadership or its members. Be really careful, especially in front of non-Christians. So in front of non-Christians, man, look for grace. Look for evidences of grace. Don't be nitpicky. We're going to do things wrong. There's always going to be place, but don't be a fault finder, especially to unbelievers, man. Speak to them in a way that makes one to draw them in. So speak positively. Number three, invite people to church, obviously. It's just so low bar. And there's studies that show that the vast majority of people will come to church if you just invite them. So take advantage of that. You know what sometimes I'll use, especially if it's someone that uh, has no church background at all, or if they've only been Catholic, only to a Catholic church, if they've never been to a Protestant service. And again, increasingly that demographic ex exists. And say, hey, man, you ought to just come just to give it a shot. You know, just round out your life experience by coming to a Baptist church service. What do you have to lose except an hour? I'll say that regularly. So invite them. Number four, ask them what they experienced at church. So this is whether you invite them, but this is also going back to evangelizing in Abilene. You know, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Next question. Oh, yeah, what, what church are you a member of? And I would use that language. Don't say, what church do you go to? Because everyone goes to church in Abilene on Christmas and Easter. Say, what church are you a member of? You know, dig in a little bit and ask them, oh, yeah, tell me about the last service. I've never been there. Tell me about it. And that's just to try to draw them in. It's good sometimes to know what sermon series our bigger churches in town are in so that when they say, I go to this one, you say, oh, yeah, I listened to that last sermon series. What did you think? Or you can make one up that you know not true. Yeah, that one on uh, technology. Yeah, that was strong. Oh, no. You weren't there, bro. Outed. Don't do that. Number five, 
Invite non-Christians to hang out with your Christian friends. Again, man, as y'all are hanging out, whether it's formally or informally, and you have non-Christian friends, bring them along. Say, hey, we're going to go wherever with my church friends and just bring them along. Invite them into a home group. Invite them into going to dinner, be hospitable. All those things and more. Last section, how the church encourages us to faithful evangelism. The local church equips you to evangelize. So this is everything I mentioned that we do up here is to equip you to do the same, to make you become gospel fluent. Ephesians 4, Christ gave the church, Ephesians 4, 12 following, Christ gave the church pastors and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so in many ways, the staff of this church left ministry when we came on staff. That's the way biblically to think about it is that the staff left ministry when they came on staff at a church. Why? Now our job is equipping the saints for the ministry. You do the ministry according to Ephesians 4. So this is why we're doing this this summer. Our goal with this whole summer class is to help you become more faithful evangelists. Number two, the local church provides opportunities for evangelism. Again, I don't know if we think about it this way very often, but we provide a ton of opportunities, even right here in this room. Just think, I mean, it's been like three years on Sunday mornings where there are a whole host of faces I don't recognize. And I know, is that the case for you? There are often Sundays where you're like, I don't know them, I don't know them, I don't know them. Take advantage. Who knows where those people are, right? It may be their first time in church in a decade and they're just trepid about being here. And they may be total unbelievers. And they're just here because they're at the end of their rope. I mean, who knows where these people are? And so when you see a face, I know it's hard because we love one another and we want to encourage one another, but take advantage of Sunday mornings to do evangelism, to help people take a step toward Jesus, wherever they are, a step toward Jesus. Who knows what that means? You know, the most underrated avenue for evangelism in the local church is? Any guesses? Just throw it out if you got it. Nursery. (laughs) Kids ministry. I mean, seriously, when in any other context do you have a massive room filled with mostly people who are not yet Christians? And they're listening to you. (laughs) You've got their attention. So, man, kids ministry. Again, with kids that some of them have professed faith, some of them haven't yet, but here you've got a room full of little malleable, moldable hearts for 40 minutes. Take advantage and share the gospel and pound home and press in the gospel to those children. What an opportunity. We need you. We need you. That's right. I think there's literally, I think there's 17 babies coming this fall. So we need some help. Praise God. We need your help. We're scared. <laughs> so come early. Stay late with a means to encourage. Coming in this room with intentionality to encourage one another and meet people that either maybe they don't know the Lord, maybe they think they know the Lord, but we want to help them take a step closer to the Lord wherever they're at. Uh, Just a heads up of something that's coming. Stephen White is leading the charge on this, but we're going to do basically some neighborhood learning, hopefully in the fall. I'm not sure what the timeline is, but just to learn this neighborhood really well, what we want to do first is just learn about our neighbors better. And then after that, Dave Menzik doesn't know it, but he's going to be at work to help us then bless this neighborhood in a whole host of tangible ways and a bunch of other ways. But we want to, uh, 